Howdy and welcome to the 10-Week Bible Study. This is week six, day one of our study of Acts. I'm your host, Aaron Hibbs, and today we're talking about Acts 15, 1 through 21. Welcome back to the 10-Week Bible Study. Again, I'm your host, Aaron Hibbs. And before we get started, I want to encourage you to check out all the resources we have over at 10weekbible.com. We need to know the Bible now more than ever. And this may be your opportunity to start leading a Bible study in your home group, at church, in a Sunday school class. People need to know the Bible. They need other people's help to take them through it. I uh, would like to encourage you to check out all the resources that we have at 10weekbible.com to help you facilitate that. With that, let's go ahead and pray before we start today. Lord, would you open our eyes and our ears to hear what your word has to say to us, God. Speak to us and fill our hearts with the knowledge of you. We want to encounter you through your word. We want to be fascinated by your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. With that, let's jump into God's word. I'll be reading today from the NIV. This is Acts 15, starting in verse 1. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you were circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. I want to address something that I don't think I've addressed during the entire book of Acts, but it always says that people came down from Jerusalem. They came down from Judea. And Antioch is most definitely north of Judea, much further north. And so I think we would, in our culture, we would probably say that you went up from Judea to Antioch since you're going north. That would seem to be the logical thing. But they didn't have cars and planes and things like that. Um, and so Jerusalem and Judea is very high. Uh, so when you're having to walk, um, it's definitely going to feel like you're coming down from Judea. So Jerusalem, Judea, it's it's in uh, a mountainous area that's that's pretty high up compared to everything else. And so again, when you're walking, you're always coming down from there. You're going up to Jerusalem. And so that's why it always talks about it like that. It's coming from the perspective of someone who's actually having to use their own two feet to do this, right? I don't know that we would say we went up to Denver now. We just say we went to Denver right? But Denver's a mile high. And if you were having to walk, uh, you would feel it. Actually, there's, from most vantage points, you're not really going up that fast to get to Denver. But let's say if you went from Denver to, you know, the, the Rocky Mountains, you went to, um, I don't know, the the divide or somewhere, one of the, the cities, let's say you went to Keystone in, in Colorado, if you're familiar with that from Denver, you would definitely say we went up to Keystone if you're having to walk. Um, but driving, we don't feel the effects of having to go up and down like that. So we don't use language like that, but that's why they always say this. All right. Now remember, this is in the context we're starting out here that there have been no Gentile believers before Cornelius just a few chapters ago. But now there's been an explosion of Gentile believers in Antioch, um, in the what we consider modern-day Turkey, where Paul and Barnabas have gone, and more and more Gentiles are becoming believers. And so there's a faction within the church in Jerusalem that are not happy about this. We're going to find out who they are, and we're going to find out what they're going to do about this, but they're not happy about the idea that you can be a Christian without first converting to Judaism. Because in these people's mind, the law, the Old Testament law, 
is still in effect for everyone. If you want to know God, you've got to follow the Old Testament law. And so this is going to come to a head in Acts chapter 15. And what happens in this chapter is going to be one of the most life-changing decisions for the history of mankind. Because this is going to really change everything. Now, the Holy Spirit has already set this in motion, right? But what they're going to decide here is going to have, it affects me today as a Gentile Christian. It affects me greatly. Let's continue reading. Verse 2. Uh, let's start over. Certain people came down from Antioch to Ju- uh, Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. <clears throat> Verse two, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way. And as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Um, So here we have the testimony of Paul and Barnabas talking about, we've seen lots of Gentiles become Christians. Now, everybody knows Peter's story, right? They know about that. And so that's what is kind of the, the launching pad for people starting to witness to the Gentiles and not requiring them to first be converted to Judaism. Before that, uh, if someone became a Christian, the at least the implication here is that if it was a Gentile, they were asked to convert to Judaism first. It doesn't look like there were any Gentiles who had not already converted to Judaism who were accepting the faith up to that point before Cornelius. And so this is a just a massive shift, a very massive shift. And we're, we're not talking about a minor point of doctrine here. This is not some small thing to them. This is thousands of years of understanding the scripture one way and the Holy Spirit is sort of turning it on its head. And so you can understand that this is this is a very big deal to a, a lot of the people and it's, it's going to be a struggle. It's going to be a wrestle for a little bit of time. Verse five. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. So again, this is the old guard here. Now they've become Christian, right? Some of the Pharisees, they're in, they're in this meeting, right? They're not, it's not like the, the church is now open to Pharisees who haven't put their faith in Jesus coming and being part of their meeting. That's not what this is. These Pharisees are Christians. They have believed in Jesus. And so that in and of itself is a big deal because whatever this is, 10, 20 years earlier, this would not have happened. I mean, like there were two Pharisees that we know of, two people in the Sanhedrin, um, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, the day that Jesus died, there were two of them that believed in Jesus as far as we know. And now we've got, you know, some, like there are many of them, it sounds like, that are there. And of course, they were theologians. They are guys that studied the scripture in and out. You know, Jesus looked at the Pharisees and like, you study this, you know, thinking that in in these words, you have life, but yet you don't recognize me. And so you don't have life, right? So these are those guys that studied, 
like, like no one's business. They studied and they memorized so much information. These are the guys we're talking about here. And they're like, no, the, the Bible's very clear on this, right? Verse six, the apostles and elders met to consider this question. Verse seven, after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. This is huge, right? This is a really big deal. Peter is essentially saying, we can't make the Gentiles follow the law of Moses. He's saying, we were never able to do this. Nobody has ever been able to do this. This is So there's a very interesting thing within Judaism, and this was written by the rabbis long, long ago during this time period. And the idea was that if you break one law, you've broken the entire law. Now, one of the, in my opinion, the insane beliefs of the Pharisees was instead of really putting all of your hope and faith on the atonement sacrifice that that made atonement for your sin, the Pharisees tried to justify themselves by believing that they just couldn't break any law ever. And so they had all of these extra rules and things set up as, as kind of fence posts, right, to keep them far away from breaking any of the biblical laws. So they had, you know, there's something like 600 some odd commands, and then there's thousands upon thousands of commands in the Talmud, in the Jewish tradition. And essentially the Jewish tradition is trying to like say, okay, well, here is the the hole in the ground that is sinning, that is breaking the law. If we just put these fence posts around that hole in the ground, uh, if you follow those rules, then you won't ever fall into the pit of sin. And, and essentially that's what they were trying to do. And then in their minds, they believed that they could actually do that. And we know that that's not possible. We know that that's not possible. What that ends up doing is it creates this boundary layer of self-justification where it's like, well, I don't sin. And, and there were actually Pharisees. There were, there were people like this that believed that they didn't actually really sin because they were they followed the law so well. And, and Peter is pointing out, it's like, you know what? We've said these kinds of things. We've heard people say these kinds of things. But you know what? Nobody can do this. Nobody cannot sin. We're so given over to it. We realize this. When you, when you take off the fog and the mask of self-justification, you see that. There's people today that live a life of self-justification. They believe that they don't sin. They believe that they're better than everyone else. They believe all of these things about themselves. <clears throat> and it, it blinds them to the reality that they are broken, broken sinners. And then they need Jesus to justify them, not themselves. And Peter is pointing this out. He's saying, no, 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 this, this is how life has to work for us. We need, we need Jesus' grace just like they do. And how can we put on something 
on them that we've never been able to measure up to. So this is a very interesting argument. Verse 12, the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Let me pause right there. This is not the James that died, not the James brother of John. This is James, the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus. Now, depending on if you're Catholic or whatever, you might say, they say he's the cousin of Jesus. And and based on the, the language and the culture, that's actually possible. He could have been a cousin of Jesus, but, but most, I would say, non-Catholic scholars believe that this is James, the half-brother of Jesus, who essentially stepped in as when, when one of the 12 apostles, James, the brother of John, was murdered by Herod, this James stepped up in his, into his place. And so it can be kind of confusing if you're not used to looking at this. It's like, what I thought James was dead. That he come back from the dead? It's, it's a different James. It's a different James. It's James, the brother of, of Jesus. And this James ends up kind of being the, the main apostle in the church of Jerusalem after the rest of the apostles end up leaving. This James ends up kind of sticking around in Jerusalem. All right, continuing on. James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Verse 14. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. Now, this is very interesting. Peter, uh, Paul, and Barnabas, they're giving experiences up to this point. They're saying, this is what the Holy Spirit did through us, right? They're not giving any biblical justification for, for their decision here that we shouldn't put on the Gentiles the law. And James stand up and he, and he quotes from the prophet Amos and says, listen, this is, uh, you know, what God said a long time ago is that he's going to rebuild David's fallen tent and that Gentiles who bear my name, right? Again, we have to understand in their minds the distinction between a Gentile and a Jewish convert. A Jewish convert to them. They would say that, but in their mind, they were Jewish. They'd become Jewish if they were a Jewish convert. There was in 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 before God, there was no distinction. They were no longer Gentile, actually. It's actually like they're renouncing their citizenship of being not Jewish, being a Gentile. Now they have become Jewish. And so anytime scripture says Gentile, you're talking about uncircumcised people that don't follow the law of Moses who aren't Jewish, right? This is, this is not speaking of Jewish converts. This prophetic scripture is speaking of Gentiles being allowed to be part of the community of faith in God. So James tells them this, and all of them are like, oh my, he's right. They're, I mean, they're going to see this and they're be like, that's exactly what it's saying. Verse 19, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city 
from the earliest times and it is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. So basically he's giving them these four things, right? Don't eat um, food polluted by, I don't, don't eat food sacrificed to idols, refrain from sexual immorality, immorality, um, and don't, uh, eat meat from strangled animals. Um, if you strangle an animal to kill it, all of its blood stays in the muscle tissue. Um, this is kind of gory, but the, this is just how it is. Most of the time when you kill an animal to butcher it, to eat it, uh, while it's still alive, while its heart is still beating, a lot of times you, uh, make the animal unconscious through various means. But while it's still alive and its heart can still pump blood, you slit its throat so that the blood gets all pumped out. The heart pumps is almost all of the blood out of the body. And that's how, in a kosher sense, you you butcher the animal. And that's how most meat is <clears throat> butchered, butchered here, in the United States at least, is, is there's actually bloodletting so that you're not eating meat with the blood still in it. And so uh, most meat in the United States would would be kosher in one sense or another. Uh, what makes meat kosher in a lot, a lot of butchers in the United States is just that it's the same process. It's actually just blessed by a rabbi. They pay a rabbi to bless it and that makes it kosher. But the kosher process is followed for almost all meat. I'm sure you could find meat that doesn't follow that process, but most, most meat in the United States follows that process. So they're saying don't eat meat with blood in it and don't drink blood, right? Very interesting things to, to pick, right? These four things are, are out of all of the things in the law of Moses. These things are in the law of Moses. Of all of these things, one of them makes sense. Sexual morality is, it's just, it's bad for everybody. Don't do that, right? But uh, eating food, sacrificed to idols, and then meat with blood in it and blood itself. Very interesting things. I think the last two probably were somewhat reprehensible for the Jews, but also, I think there's always been some level of uh, occultic ideology with eating bloody food and with eat, eating, drinking blood in general. Um, I know there's some cultures around the world where they do that, actually, and it's not necessarily occultic. But um, I think in their day and in our day, too, things involving blood, it, it always seems to revolve around occultic activity. And so there was probably that as well. And it's like, stay away from this. It's just, it's bad. It's always bad. Um, we also know that the first thing that James mentions, the, the food sacrificed to idols, food polluted by idols, what he says. Paul is actually going to take this up in, in a, a few of his epistles and talk about how what James is, is writing here is essentially, it's maybe not necessarily command, but he's going to explain how essentially whatever you do as a Christian, that if you're doing it against your conscience, you're actually sinning. And so he's saying, you know, there's probably times where it's okay to eat food sacrificed to idols unless you think it's wrong. If you think it's wrong and then you do it anyway, then that's sin for you. Um, that's another discussion for another time, but that's one of the things that Paul unpacks from this. But these, I find these very interesting. And this is going to, again, this changes everything in the life of the church. This changes everything for me today. They've said, hey, Darren, as a Gentile Christian, you don't have to be circumcised and follow all the customs and laws of Moses like a Jewish convert. You don't have to do that to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus. 
That's a really, really big deal. But it's very obvious from Scripture, and it's very obvious from their experience what the Holy Spirit was leading them to do, and that's what we have even up to this day. So if you are a Gentile, you can be a Christian without first converting to Judaism. For the 10-Week Bible Study, I'm your host, Darren Hibbs, and I can't wait to see you next time. Hey, thanks for tuning into the 10-Week Bible Study Podcast. If you've enjoyed this podcast, would you consider leaving a review for it on your podcast app of choice? It really helps other people find out about this podcast, and my heart is for people to fall in love with God's Word. Thank you.